social indicators of violent crime among young working class street gangs have remained consistent for 200 years. Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Barstool's Refuse to Lose. This is a new band from London, UK Hardcore, featuring Pierre from Knuckle Dust and Bun the Mount, Nick Barker, who played in Broheria, Cradle Phil, Demo Borger, Testament, members of Dripback, and Kings of Pigs. For those of you who are big Sham 69 fans, remember Barstool Breakout? That's where the band gets their name from. They have a new EP. Dropped yesterday, April 1st, on 4Family Records. We're going to have links to their YouTube videos and how you can get the records. So, thank you for our first international track. We are brought to you by Crucified Straight Edge. Check us out at xcrucifiedx.com or at Crucified Straight Edge, one word, on Instagram. If you want to walk around wearing a cool-ass Straight Edge shirt and not look like a dork, go no further. This isn't for nerd shit. This isn't some fantasy, never met the person, or maybe they broke edge, but they're still selling straight edge shit. 
This is real deal, straight edge dudes putting out straight edge shirts that they actually walk around and wear them. I know because I'm one of the people who run this shit and I wear this shit. Check it out, xcrucifiedx.com. I really appreciate the support we've gotten from all the folks who look into a new episode every single Friday and all the new people that check out an episode every week for the very first time. When we get asked, how can I help your show? Obviously, sharing on social media, letting people know that we have a new episode out, going, liking, sharing, subscribing, doing the whole four-star, five-star gimmick on the iTunes thing. But now we have Patreon, Patreon slash thisishardcore.com. It's pretty simple. Depending on the level that you like to engage, we're going to have a monthly Q&A, some bonus episodes, and we can also have a discard link that you can go ahead and chit-chat on about the different episodes. Nothing that I ever do each week will be paywalled. Everything on the Patreon will be extra stuff if you're looking for more content. Thank you for the support, and I can't wait to see how people enjoy the Discord server and all the stuff we have on Patreon. Continuing on the kind of conversations that I was looking to have, where we see how the innovators in the 1980s hardcore scene, who have such an influential impact, not only in our history, but the direction that hardcore would shift in the 90s. It'd be impossible to have this kind of conversation without talking to Walter Shreples. His story starts like a lot of ours in high school, and hearing music and not knowing where to find it, and the random interactions that would occur where someone would put him onto this and then he would find his own stuff. But he also ties into something that we talked about on the Isaac episode about Queens, New York. And it goes without saying how much hardcore in New York City in the early to mid and even to the early 90s, how much Queens played a role in just being a connected neighborhood where hardcore people from... You know, Anthony Commune now, Killing Time, Breakdown Guys, into, you know, I mean, actually in the very beginning, you have Robbie from The Mob, and, you know, eventually Walter, Siv, Isaac. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And he comes from this world and puts his own mark in it when he, they start doing Gorilla Biscuits. And later on, as we get into the story, he starts speaking on. Gorilla Biscuits, and what he wanted to do next. And we ran out of time, so this will be part one of what will hopefully, eventually, we get to finish his story, or not finish his story, but finish where he went, where he got into quicksand, and what would be known as post-hardcore, and etc. But for now, this is basically a Walter early year story. And I hope you enjoy it. So let's rock. We're talking to Walter Treples. Possibly one of the greatest story discographies and overall impactful parts of the entire hardcore story. It's specifically New York hardcore. And it is absolutely important to note that it is 2021 and my man is still going full speed ahead. Mm-hmm. He's got a lot of stories and a lot of inspiration for all of us. And his impact on hardcore will be felt long after we're all gone. Walter, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Joe. Glad to be here. So for me, I know that you were not quite there at the very beginning, but I've always wondered what kind of music were you listening to as a kid and what was going on in your house musically that would kind of like form the amazing amount of songs that you would later write? Like what was the impact so early on to get you to be such a songwriter and, you know, musician? Uh, Early stuff that I was into is I think probably typical for 
of you know my generation like uh, my parents were listening to uh like James Taylor and Crosby Stills and Nash and I guess stuff that would have been considered like kind of college rock Fleetwood Mac um Steely Dan like that kind of stuff maybe around the house my mom was really into Bob Dylan um I got I discovered the Beatles at a young age with um with Yellow Submarine. So that really kind of blew my mind. Uh, seeing Yellow Submarine kind of got me um, interested in music, I would say. And then um, as time went by, you know, I had older cousins that had turned me on to uh, kind of cooler stuff, I guess, you know, like Bruce Springsteen or, uh, you know, I had a cousin that was into Southern rock, got me into like Leonard Skinner to some degree and, and, uh, you know, kind of like big rock bands at the time and whatever was on the radio. Um, I started once I got to the age of being able to stay up for Saturday Night Live. I think that's when I started to like get things that were not coming from my direct family kind of thing. Like I remember staying up really late and catching the B-52s as a kid and just being like, what the hell is is this? And um, And I guess a real turning point for me in terms of leading me toward punk would have been, my cousin took me to see the, um, the kids are all right. When I was, I don't know, it was probably 1980. I was probably like 10 years old or something like that. And um, the, it was a double feature with the kids are right, all right documentary with this other movie, rock and roll high school playing before as a double feature. Yeah. So the who movie was amazing. I mean, it's still the who are one of the most impactful bands on me but the uh seeing rock and roll high school at that age was just like nothing else you know not walking into it like not knowing anything about it to like hearing the music and how raw and and fast it sounded and just how the Ramones looked and and uh the the atmosphere in which you know all these people these like kind of cool looking older kids were like rocking to this band that I had never heard of except for mainly they had a song called Rockaway Beach, which was actually where I grew up. So that kind of even drew the connection more into that. And I think once I knew who the Ramones were, I was more interested in just kind of seeking out, you know, I bought their album End of the Century uh, when it came out. Uh, you know, it isn't their like punkest record or, or whatever, or most wild, but, um, you know, I had friends that had older brothers that had their collection. So I really dug into the Ramones and then eventually found a Sex Pistols album. You know, it wasn't easy to find even like the Sex Pistols at that time, you know, especially as a teenager. I had to like, you know, get on a bus to go to Brooklyn from, you know, uh, to the mall to like Sam Goody to see what they might have. And, and so I found Nevermind the Bullocks and that kind of gave me a deeper taste for that. And, uh, but I was also very interested. I would read Rolling Stone magazine. Um, at that time, I'd start to just like see whatever was getting reviewed and whatever was getting reviewed with a lot of stars and had a cool record cover, I would buy that too. Um, so, you know, I got into listening to some college rock stuff like R.E.M., early R.E.M., uh, bought a Velvet Underground record at an early age. Like I, it just, they had repressed them. So they all the reviews were like five stars i didn't quite get it but um you know i was aware of it so these different influences 
you know, I was also listening to a record station, a record, uh, a record, a uh, radio station out in Long Island called uh, WLIR, which you could get in Rockaway, uh, which was in Queens. And they were playing all this uh, English import music. So, you know, I heard the first Smiths single when it came out because they were playing all these like British uh, records. And uh, it was ultimately that, that radio station, they did a show on, I guess it was probably Sunday nights um, or maybe it was Saturday night, I, I don't remember, but uh, called the Midnight Riot. And, uh, you know, back then you, you would, uh, to, to get songs on the radio, you know, nowadays you obviously, you know, you have a streaming service or whatever, you know, you can hear anything you want. But back then, if, if they, the DJ didn't say the name of the song or whatever like that, it was just lost to you because everything was happening. So you'd always want to have like your boom box ready to press play and record. So uh, this show, the midnight riot came on. And uh, I think the first song I heard was uh, ignorant by uh, urban waste. And, you know, from listening to like dead Kennedy's uh, or not even dead Kennedy's um, listening to yeah, sex pistols, Ramones, like that kind of stuff. And then hearing Urban Waste, it just seemed like this was the, the the real shit. This was the hardcore. This is it's called hardcore. So the whole show was dedicated to hardcore and punk. So I just pressed play and record. So I was listening to like the, I had the first few songs on the Urban Waste seven inch recorded. Uh, Beastie Boys, like you know, everyone knows who the Beastie Boys are. But at one time they were just a hardcore band. So I got the first few songs of the Beastie Boys record on tape. Um, Dead Kennedys, uh, GBH, um, Anti Nowhere League, um, you know, this kind of broad swath of hardcore music. And I just had it on this cassette tape and I would just, you know, stay up late the following weekends for the show and, and just kind of tape it whenever it came on. So that was kind of my early education to hardcore. And um, it just also at that time just struck me. I was like 13. Um, and Rockaway Beach is in New York City. It's in, in Queens, but it's like the furthest away from Manhattan that you can be basically and still be in New York. So like for me to go at 13 years old to take the train to go find a show was just like, would require some real, it was beyond me. You know what I mean? So I just had these tapes and, um, a curiosity for it that would later kind of um, fall together when I moved from Rockaway to uh, Astoria, Queens, which is more like the capital of all, all this shit, to be honest uh, with, with uh, I saw a kraut sticker on a, uh, on a no parking sign in Astoria. And I didn't have any friends in Astoria. I would just move there cold, like just no friends at all. And, um, and when I saw that kraut sticker, my heart just kind of leapt like because in Rockaway there was no one like hardcore or punk like maybe people would be into it but if you wanted to like wear a leather jacket and shave your head in Rockaway you would just get beat up all the time it wouldn't be like a feasible plan unless you were like really determined to to make that statement uh there, there was just like me listening to the music and and um but when I got to Astoria I noticed that there was like hardcore kids and you know, skaters mainly. And uh, eventually, you know, through some twists of fate, you know, I, I felt I, I, I made friends with some of the kids, you know, like you probably know Arthur from Grill Biscuits and 
uh, he was the first friend that I made in Astoria. And um, they just kind of introduced me to the whole world of, of CBGBs and like, obviously like so much more music that I, I really had no idea about. And, uh, you know, it just began uh, a sort of a journey, you know, in a way to kind of, uh, especially at that time of my life, find some sort of sense of belonging and some sort of like mission, you know, the mission would be to like survive the show, you know, to learn more about music, to make friends, to, to, to uh, gain experience in this sort of, uh, I don't know, it, it's, it was an active experience, you know, whereas like I might've thought a couple years before, like, you know, you two are one of my favorite bands. I think they're really uh, incredible, uh, especially at that time. But, and I saw you two live and they knocked me out. I thought it was amazing. But hardcore was like an active experience. Like you weren't just like sitting back and getting blown away by the bands. You were like joining it and being a part of it. And you could be on stage right next to the singer and be a part of this visual, the whole, whole thing. Like you were the, the experience, you know what I mean? And that was just unlike any other, uh, any other kind of music thing, like even punk bands, you know what I mean? Like you can't get up and do a stage dive to the clash. It doesn't work like that. You know what I mean? Not, not that no, I was not old enough to see the, the clash, but it's more about a passive about like listening to the song, getting, you know, it's a cool song. Hardcore, the songs are like way, shittier sounding and you have to kind of like understand what it's being designed to do and what it's being designed to do is like it's almost like an unfinished thing that only the show can finish the idea of what what the song is it's like just a part of the song is a part of a larger puzzle of which you're invited to fit to be that piece and I think that's what still draws me into hardcore you know and and, and makes me feel like uh lucky to have come across it and also um never quite being able to figure it out because there's always a new kind of invitation into it and and i think we were talking about before these like the first 10 years or whatever to like what's come since then you know i've been jumping more into hardcore lately like it, it hasn't changed in that it's infinitely um there's infinite potential within this very simple form. So I don't know that I just like really just, you know, that's a long answer, but uh, no. I guess it's a real evolution, you know? No, I appreciate. And uh, there's a couple of things we'll touch on just going over what you said. It's interesting that you would go from a background uh, being exposed to uh, singer songwriter type music and get electric and get like really excited about Ramones. Cause one of the things I think that sticks out about the Ramones discography is though they had the, the I mean, we wouldn't think about like Fury and Fast, but at that time they were like Fast and Furious. Yet they still wrote these clever songs. Yes, yeah, and that, and on top of it, there's no their Urban Waste specifically might just be the penultimate early age seven inch. Like within the, you know, there's the pantheon of those first couple records, mm -hmm. and there's a good argument that that first Urban Waste that's out on um mob records could possibly be and then you mentioned kraut and this is the kind of stuff that i'd like to talk to people because i want younger people to understand like a lot of times new york hardcore history is written like well the bad brains came to new york and then agnostic front came out and then that's it and with mm -hmm. there but there's 
there's crowd, there's, there's, uh, you know, obviously the mob, there's annihilistics. And I know that with Rockaway beach, it's so far physically away, but if you, if you zoom out, you're like, Oh, well it's still in New York. But at that time, if you weren't, if you didn't know somebody, you were completely cut out. And I, and what was interesting is you had mentioned that midnight riot show a couple of years before they had that W NYU, the noise show with the Tim Summers. And yeah. there's people that you're friends with that were documented in the one book saying that they tape shows. So it's cool to see that in this early stage in New York hardcore, all of you were taping these shows and getting excited about these bands that you weren't able, able to actually see. And, um, before we get into hardcore stuff at what is it, is it the stage where you start playing or to take hanging out with Arthur for you to start actually just playing music? Um, I guess one thing that I overt, uh, I, I didn't put in my, um, in my kind of discography was ACDC were a big influence on me too. Oh, yeah. Like the first songs that I, I learned on guitar, the first song was, was uh, back in black. And I was kind of into ACDC at the same time that I was getting into dead Kennedys, you know, like, it, okay. it, so there was a kind of a merge there, but, um, you know, that kind of aggressive, uh, the heaviness of ACDC, like, I think fed my, um, interest in, um, in punk and hardcore. Cause it also seemed like accessible to play it. So, I was learning guitar at the same time that I was like getting into this hardcore okay. stuff. And um, so, yeah, I had been playing a, a bit, you know, but when I met Arthur, it was more like, I, I guess it was just kind of cool that I could play guitar and, and Arthur, you know, obviously was a really great musician. Actually, he he's, was very good. I was, didn't really have the chops that he had, but him and me would just hang out in his bedroom and like play channel three songs play like descended songs, play um, uh, stiff little fingers, like, I guess more like punky stuff that we could like yeah. sing along and play to. And it's, um, I mean, it's really kind of a sweet memory actually thinking about these two like teenagers just jamming in the bedroom, like just wanting so much to like em embrace this music. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that I could play guitar kind of, you know, when I was talking about hardcore before where it's like, the song is the is sort of like setting the stage for the larger project in a way, which is like, you know, the events that happen around that band. Like, I guess the events that would have, you know, I was sort of peripheral to token entry at that time. Cause token entry were kind of like the, the group that I, they were kind of the main people that I fell in with through Arthur. And, um, so the fact that I could play guitar kind of made me see like, well, you know, I'm not like necessarily, I, I'm, I had that at that point, never stage dived, you know, I didn't, had no idea how to really dance. And it didn't seem like I was going to be like a tough guy on the scene. Like I didn't think to write a fanzine. I was figured like I could play guitar. I could be in a band, you know? So that kind of became my, you know, sort of um, quest. And Arthur was, uh, Arthur and, and Ernie from Token Entry were both like helpful and like kind of filling in on that, but they were doing Token Entry. So they weren't like, yes, let's start a band with this new kid that we just met, but they were encouraging and really, uh, especially Ernie, I think really, and, and, uh, and, and Anthony Caminale as well, were educating the shit out of me, dude. They were just like, 
telling me stories like about the scene, like, you know, and, 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 you know, from, from obviously doing the podcast and being around for a while, like the names of people and, you know, and, and like who these characters are there, they sound like superheroes. So you're hearing these stories and it's just like filling your head with, with, you know, kind of big ideas, you know? So those guys were educating me on music and about the scene and how it works and it's a saga, you know what I mean? And, and I was just like learning the pieces of it from them. So something that Siv had said on Julia's podcast, which has been something that Ralphie G from the mob had said was that, and it's always funny to think in the very earliest days of New York hardcore, if you were from Queens, they were almost like, <laughs> you're from the fucking suburbs, but you don't think about Queens as being from the suburbs now. Yet I was uh, talking to Siv about this. I think it was because Queens actually had like garages and basements and places of practices that there were so many people from your neighborhood. And in fact, um, Rich McLaughlin, who had just passed away, he had actually did a map on his Instagram. He rode his bike through your neighborhood of like all these different people and where they lived. Uh And I don't think New York hardcore in the stretch that you're speaking about could have possibly happened in any other way except for the way you're talking about like Anthony and Ernie were like the old school neighborhood hardcore dudes. So they're like physically showing you guys the culture and you're like the young bucks from the neighborhood. And it is a cultural thing. They're like, Oh, these are young kids. All and, and, and I've done the exact same thing to kids that would eventually be in bands like blacklisted and horror show, which is now nothing, you know, like when you grow up in a neighborhood like that and you meet up with people, you're getting handed a culture that the older guys had. And it's very special to hear about it even in the very beginning of New York hardcore, that that's what was happening. So because you were in the area, it was easy for you to link up, but because you were, you were still, I mean, you were 13, 14, so you're still young. How was it like the first time that you, you know, you broke, you broke from just hanging out and listening to this music and you actually saw it for the first time live. Like what was that experience like for you? Did, how'd you get you guys traveled down together? Like run through the, your first actual hardcore show moment. The first one that comes to mind is uh, seeing kind of bigger shows. Like I remember seeing Dead Kennedys at uh, at the Ritz was one of the first shows I went to. And, you know, Dead Kennedys at that time were really probably the biggest, most popular band at, at that time. So uh, I just remember going there. I was probably like 15 and just trying to stay awake because I, I don't know how the what the rules were like in the 80s. But I think that they didn't have like these really hard set times like they have now. And the bands would just go on when they went on. And I just remember being fucking exhausted, like having watched like five bands and it being like two o'clock in the morning and just like wanting the dead Kennedys to go on because I was so exhausted. Um, But looking at how people, I mean, it was nuts, man. I mean, if you saw, ever saw a decline of the Western civilization, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, I had seen that and had this idea of what a scene would be like, that it would be full of these like kind of psychotic characters and some of them pretty menacing. And uh, seeing the pit in New York, and that's a big show. So that means that it's like, I mean, I didn't understand this then, but you're obviously dealing with kids from, you know, suburban New Jersey, Westchester, Long Island. It, you know, it's not really the New York scene exactly. But, you know, just seeing what kind of T-shirts people were wearing, just trying to like soak up like these, you know, like what does DRI mean? Like, I got to figure out what that is, you know. Um, and then some some people looked 
fucking crazy and scary. And some people looked really cool, like, you know, had wild, like, kind of 77 kind of like spikes or, you know, wore like had the look down, you know what I mean? And, and uh, so it was incredible. It was like going into um, stepping into a movie really. And, um, you know, so I went to some big shows like that. And then, you know, as I got in with, uh, with token entry, I went to one of their shows out in Long Island and uh, I saw really what a hardcore band is like, you know, I mean, it was, it was, you know, not that many people. Um, and I think Token Entry were kind of, when I met them, they were sort of in a pivotal time where that, you know, we're talking about those first wave of hardcore bands, you know, like all those guys were older than me. Yeah. So, you know, I think, which is kind of a life cycle of the average hardcore kid is like, you get into it first year, you learn everything about it in the second year, in the third year, you maybe start having your doubts. And by the fourth year, a lot of kids are just kind of into something else by that yep. time. You know what I mean? And you carry it's that. It's true today. Yeah. It's, I think you today. Kept, it's so intense. You can't, I think you need a break after three years. It's just, <laughs> there's so many bands. There's so much like, I mean, if you go into a, a real, I mean, I, my experience of going, going into real pits at like CBGB's where you felt like everyone was like you could die, you know what I mean? And you're doing yeah. that every weekend for like years. After a while, you need to have some other kind of experience, I think. Not everybody, but but you know what I'm saying. So um, I think that Token Entry were maybe in that stage where they had had success, you know, with Gilligan's Revenge at A7s or something like that. But they wanted to explore what the possibilities were outside of that. So I think they were kind of maybe more on this kind of like rock side of things when when they when i met them so the the show that i saw with them was not super impressive but i felt really lucky to be in the van with them and to catch the like lifestyle of like you know these they were older than me but they still weren't that old and you know anthony to me especially was just cool he wasn't just cool for hardcore he was just cool like he you know you think of like people get into hardcore being like misfits like anthony girls loved him he was just fucking cool and he was into this music because he chose it not because he needed it you know what i mean i mean i guess he needed it in his own way but like from an outside perspective he was just he was to me like very inspirational in that way and so like seeing how they were being and like what the real experience of it was cool and i went like on a kraut road trip not long after that wow. and i think and then i think kraut were kind of in a, in a similar weird space you know what i mean like it had been years since they opened for the clash at bonds, but they were still a successful band. I mean, the crowd were like legit, um, like, like punk rock band. Like they had songs. Yeah. And um, so I went on a road trip with them. I remember Davey Gunner fell asleep at the wheel and we like ran into a ditch. Luckily no one was hurt. Uh, <laughs> But to me, I was like, you know, a little bit like almost famous, like I'm on a fucking road trip with Kraut. Like, you know, two years ago, if I thought that I would be in a van with Kraut, I mean, these guys were fucking rock stars to me. You know what I mean? As, as much as like I could conceive of that, you know what I mean? So again, like that's another cool thing about hardcore is like you can be passionate about an artist as much as you would be about, you know, Prince or something, you know, or, or, or you know, uh, 
Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones, but you're never going to get to go on a van road trip with any of those dudes, you know, but you play your cards right in high school, in hardcore, you know, and you're willing to work that, that you have that kind of access. And, and that, that kind of shit blew my mind and, 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 and added a level to, of inclusion and excitement to me. And it was also a part of the education. You know what I mean? It's like, this is the lifestyle. We get in the van, we fucking show up late in Baltimore. We fucking rock to who's there. We get back, we fall asleep at the wheel. And then we get home at like, you know, five o'clock in the morning and your parents are pissed at you the next day or, or whatever. Like that is the thing. And you felt, you know, it was all, I mean, falling asleep at the wheel, I guess is a little bit dangerous, but in truth, <laughs> it was, you know, we were with, good people, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, and, and it was a, a good, a good uh, place to be actually, you know what I mean? For, for all those reasons. That's a lot of how I grew up into hardcore was being the kid that would just jump in the van and go on the weekend and go to New York and go to uh, upstate Pennsylvania. There was a venue called CC's later on. We would have to choose between not going to a show in, the pipeline in Newark and knowing we would miss the last train and have to sleep in Trenton, New Jersey till the first name roll back to Philly at 5 a.m. But I, I would never trade that. And it was exactly what you said. It's an education. You yeah. know, like that show, that show that night, that Thursday night, it might've meant, yeah, we're going to be in the train station for four hours by ourselves, but I don't want to miss that show. Cause it's never going to happen again. And yeah. in fact, later on, I was uh, actually, I was 16 turning 17 when I started traveling out of state with dysphoria and that let me be able to understand better like oh wow look at these different scenes how these bands get booked mm -hmm. so much of what i would do later on was founded in this kind of roadie family and you're the whole time like the same thing you said like holy shit the guys in dysphoria what well, is the same feeling only for you it was kraut and actually you guys paid homage to kraut later on yeah in civ and i thought that I, and now i always knew that you guys wanted to show people that band but now it, it it adds another layer to the respect that you have from them that you put their song on your record because of what they did for you. That's, that's actually incredible. Yeah. And what you said about Communal, Communal, I hung out last time we all went to a show was in Florida and hit uh, Killing Type Blade. Communal is still probably the coolest dude. Like, you know, even then, so I can only imagine him in the 80s as being the coolest motherfucker. And he's still the coolest guy in the room. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah, love him. So I wonder if because hardcore is still a very underground thing, your, your escape and your like newfound, like I'm in this secret culture, there wasn't people in your school yet, right? Or was it, it was a very small group of people that were in your school that were into this? Well, it was from Rockaway. <clears throat> no, there wasn't really. I mean, there was some kids that maybe knew who the dead Kennedys were or stuff like that. But Astoria just had such a different vibe. So I went to Long Island City High School, which is like right in the middle of... Um, right by the Queensboro Bridge. And um, there were punk kids in my high school. So that kind of blew my mind. You know, there was uh, uh, Mary X, uh, Nikki X's sister, I remember. I think Nikki X wasn't in school anymore, but she was like goth as fuck and like just looked wild. And uh, this guy, Mike uh, Mastriano, I think he was, uh, used to go out with uh, token entry after me, you know, had a leather jacket, spiky hair and, uh, uh john drescher jimmy's yeah younger brother was also went to high school with me so you know i i had you know people that were in the scene and as a matter of fact there was this other kid 
um, I think his name was Marcelo. I had to look at my old yearbook, but you know, he saw that I was into punk, you know, like maybe I had a, you know, black flag button on or something like that. So he asked me, are you into punk? And I said, yeah, he's all right, cool. He just kind of, and I was like, Oh, you know, maybe we talked for a minute about it. He came in uh, next week into school and just gave me this whole like thick ass pile of seven inches wow. with, with the urban waste test pressing wow. um, both of my threat singles um, all the shit on touch and go like uh, process elimination record um, and a lot of stuff from the UK, like red alert um, uh, uh, exploited singles um, shit. What was it? He had other stuff for the blitz like all yeah. this amazing, like, like this many records, like the fucking coolest shit ever. And he just gave them to me because he was like, I guess wasn't into it anymore. So like he was already over. And that was what, like 84, 85. Yeah, that would have been 85. And so that he touches, be, that's and that he whole thing. Age. That's that Stephen Blush thing, though, where like they were saying like people go, like, oh, it's all over. I seen it yeah, all. Exactly. That's so crazy. And he was super nice about it. He was not, there was no cynicism in it. He just saw it as like, this guy's into something that I was into. So I'm going to pass this on to him. So all of a sudden I had this instant, amazing record collection. And like, I didn't know barely, you know, as I, as I described it, the going to the, to the dead Kennedy's show, like there were so many logos and insignias that I had no idea what they were. So I'm listening to all these records, just looking at the crazy ass record covers, reading the thanks lists and taking all the music in as one in one shot on my own. And um, so it's just amazing, like how much, you know, what I gravitated to and what, uh, you know, and, and how it started to make sense that there was these like little records, like even the, even the concept of having like a, a seven inch record, but there'd be like eight songs on it. Like that was just like, what? Yeah. You know what I mean? There was no precedent for that for me. So anyway, it was just this really incredible. So yeah, my high school in Astoria in, in Long Island City had hardcore people in it. And it was very chill because it was a, kind of a perfect school in because in Rockaway where I went to school is like near um, Far Rockaway. So it was just like a rough school. You know what I mean? It was just like the, the way that the, the, the mix was, was just like set up for conflict in a way. Cause it's like, I had nothing, you know, I was poor, you know what I mean? So I would, it was nothing to get from me, but I was, you were constantly at, you know, war in a way. And there was tough kids from like uh, Irish kids from, um, from broad channel that were nuts and still would start fights. But in Long Island city, by comparison, there was no like dominant group. So like everyone was cool with each other. There was just like such a nice mix of, of uh, you know, what we call now diversity. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you could be a punk and no one would just kick your ass for looking different. You know what I mean? Like it was like acceptable because everyone had like their own numbers that they couldn't dominate on someone and just say, because you look this way that we're gonna beat the shit out of you because everyone was cool with each other. And like in Rockaway, it was, it was not as much like that, you know? Now, something you touched on, which constantly comes up is the influence not only are the touch and go records, which were also influenced by the UK sound, but it seems like the very earliest pioneers of hardcore were also getting them same seven inches, whether it's UK subs, exploited GBH, you know, um, they were all very impactful. 
So it's very cool to hear that even at your young age, you're being uh, given these amazing seven inches because you could hear the impact in New York hardcore from these things from uh, England. Also, I had a thriller seven inch as like a child. Uh-huh. So when I bought my first like hardcore, I had the same feeling. I'm looking, I'm like, how the hell are there seven songs on this? Is the thriller might've had one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a funny thought, but, uh, but it, th- even just that is like, Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's more value. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, for me, what you said about the patches, the first time I listened to youth of today was after going to South street and seeing somebody with a giant youth of today t-shirt and be like, that thing looks fucking cool. I got to figure out what this is. You know, like there's that commonality where you see something, you know, yes. it's cool, but you don't know what it is. Yes. And this is pre Google. So you have to figure out, you have to like ask somebody like, Hey, where, what, what is that? Or how do I get that? You know, like, so it's cool to see that even alive then. Now, what do you think? The, what do you think came first? The someone asking you to play in a band or are you trying to do a band? How did you get from being roadie to starting to play in these bands? Um, I think certainly Ernie encouraged me to start a band. And I think Ernie's just the type of person that likes to, he's so creative. Uh, Ernie from Token Entry is who I'm yeah. talking about. Um, yeah, Ernie Prada. He's so creative and also he wants to see these ideas manifest. So I think he saw in me like, um, I don't know. He was just very encouraging is really, but he would just like, you know, a lot of the ethos of Gorilla Biscuits, this sort of like fun spirit. I I think Ernie definitely had a great role in that because anything kind of silly that I thought of or, or, you know, he was, he was back in that. He was never like pull back from that. Um, and and Arthur would kind of dip in and dip out of it. Um, and uh, and it was actually Ernie who we started hanging out with. Uh, you know, when you're when you're a hardcore punk kid, you're looking for other hardcore punk kids to hang out with. So we uh, went to a party one night in Jackson Heights, which is kind of a, an adjacent neighborhood to Astoria. And we met uh, I met Siv that night and a whole bunch of people that are, you know, my friends to this day, like, you know, a party like that, where just like, we've been friends now since that day. Um, and I, I really hit it off with Siv and uh, I guess we were hanging out one day and and I had been singing and playing guitar, but it, I found it kind of dr- tough to sing and play. And also I think in hardcore, it's better to have a front man than to have a singer. But if I was the front man, then who's gonna play guitar? Um, so, Ernie suggested Siv as the singer. And I thought, yeah, fuck, Siv's cool as shit. That would be good. And so, and Siv was up, up for it. So uh, that started the band. And then, you know, we weren't, it's just like any other band, you know, we weren't, we weren't really insiders on the scene. We were like definitely peripheral because we were younger. You know, we were kind of under the wings of like Anthony and those guys. Um, so, it wasn't like anyone gave a shit what we were doing, but, um, but you know, those guys in token entry were encouraging. And then kind of, we played a party uh, and sick of it all came. Cause we, I guess, cause sick of it all were kind of coming up at the same time. They were like way better. And from my point of view, like way more insider than we were, but, um, but you know, there was some kinship there from right from the beginning with them. And um, you know, token entry eventually, uh, gave us the chance to open for them at CB's and 
that just kind of made us, you know, we, I'm not saying that we were good, but we had such a fucking good time. We're like, we love this. We, we got to do this shit more and figure out how to get better so that people will care. So, you know, we just got, got to work. Now, under the stewardship of Commonality and Ernie, who were already doing bands, mm-hmm. was the steps kind of like, hey, we're going to play New York and then maybe play somewhere else? Or were you guys just New York focused for, for the first couple of years? We were just dying to play anywhere that we could play. I mean, yeah. we, you know, I would call up CBs like every week, you know, trying, you know, we had to make a demo tape. We finally made a demo tape, you know, gave it to, uh, to people like Siv gave one to Roger from Agnostic Front, which is kind of amazing. And Roger still has it, which is- Of course he does. He has everything. He has a lot. I mean, you know, Roger, it's, but to me, it's still amazing. Um, you know, we were just trying any which way, I mean, to, to get a show. And uh, so we managed to get that show at CB's. Then we managed to get on a, on a, on a pretty epic show called The Birth of Unity with um, a whole bunch of bands. I don't remember who headlined, but it was like no one big headlined, but I'm pretty sure Sick of It All played, Crackdown, um, just like a lot of kind of like medium kind of like up and comer crappy bands all played the same show together. And um, again, like I didn't see us as like the band to watch at that point. Like, I just thought we were lucky to be there and to, and, you know, had a good vibe. You know, we had like Timmy Chunks was really a, a big advocate of ours. He wasn't even in token entry at the time, but to me, Timmy was the ultimate, like Timmy was one of the people that I saw at that dead Kennedy show. And I thought that motherfucker looks crazy. And then I'm friends with him and he's on side stage of our band and you know, so like little victories like that gave me some confidence that like someone that I considered very cool was backing us. But again, I didn't think we were that great, but maybe our energy was kind of cool. But the spirit of like all these bands starting up at the same time and that someone had organized a show that cost like $5 with like 10 bands and we were part of that that was huge for us. And so we would only get shows sporadically like that. We had no juice to like set up a show, you know, we would just have to take whatever scraps we could get. And I wonder, um, obviously from your perspective, this is around the same time that youth of today is already starting to roll, correct? Or is it just right before? So Uh, did you right around that time? So one of the things that, this is just a perspective based upon, you know, reading books, podcasts, et cetera. Usually they came in, but quickly it started to be a separate thing. Would you agree? Or you think at the same time they were in that world still? I don't think it was a separate thing. I think what happened was like, I joined the scene. I got started going to shows at a time, like how I was describing token entry. Yeah. Like all those older guys had done their bands. They peaked. They made all those fucking amazing seven inches and maybe they got tired of playing to the same 125 people and either like went to college, got jobs, dropped out, found something cooler, Um, you know, musically ran out, you know, Agnostic Front, for example, uh, and the Chromags were aiming at bigger things at that point because, you know, 
victim of pain was how, how can you write a better hardcore record than that? Like they had to go someplace yeah. and, or like the Chromax age of quarrel, like demo at that time, like that, that couldn't just be held to this small scene. It had to, they were smart to try to like, let, to try to make it a bigger thing because it was, it was so good. So, so though either the bands had all kind of broken up for whatever reason, or were headed outside of New York. So what was left in New York was just like, not a lot. There wasn't like okay. a, a good local scene anymore. So like the biggest band I remember in New York that everyone was really psyched to see was Corrosion of Conformity, you oh, know, shit. and Corrosion, not, and, and dude, respect to Corrosion of Conformity, they're fucking yeah. amazing. But I think it was Technocracy, which was more of like a crossover record. Yeah, absolutely was. And um, so I wanted to be at CB's for the urban waste shit. I didn't want to be there for the metal shit. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, ha I have a love for the metal stuff, but at that time, like I wanted hardcore, not crossover. So Youth Today came and there was nobody locally doing anything. Like the focus, like I said, of Agnostic Front and, and Chromax was not New York so much anymore. It was like, how do we take this amazing thing and, and make it bigger? Um, you know, that, you know, from my perspective, that's what was going on. Um, and so Ray came, you know, and that includes like Minor Threat, all those bands. Like yeah, they all, all kind of went. Broken up the whole fucking thing. Yeah. That whole first generation, like, like Negative Approach, all those Boston bands, they were all, for lack of a better word, over it. You know what I mean? And Ray came with this Youth Today thing, which was like, here's a fucking skinhead on the cover of this record looking like fucking nuts. It's yeah. called Youth of Today. It's like the most generic hardcore name of all time. How could no, someone not have already thought of it? It couldn't be more like generic and punk. And you listen to the songs and they're all just about like, they're fucking super basic. There's like a primitive mosh beat and you can sing along to the whole thing. And it was like, Ray had collected all that, that like everything that was good about New York from like, you know, antidote um you know uh like kind of uh cause for alarm the band cause for alarm yeah um and all the good great shit from boston like ssd um dys negative approach took all those styles and and the music is constructed in that way and the imagery and and the kind of idea behind it is like lifted from say a minor threat you know what i mean where you have this like so he basically took all combined all the best shit from that first generation and reintroduced it. And so for me, like, of course, like CUC were amazing. They were great. And I, and I, and, and, and it's like metal as a form, like, you know, I came from like ACDC, that's not metal, but like I related to it, but um, I wanted hardcore and, and you say we're bringing hardcore. So was it only, did it switch? No, he brought back what was already ours in a way. And, um, or Youth Today did, that's how I saw it. And the reason Youth Today was successful in New York is because they included everybody. It wasn't like, we're the straight edge band and you gotta be straight edge or you're not included. No, it was like, Ray was tight with like Warzone, for example, had jumped on. Yeah. So that, that kind of got that old school acceptance. And Ray started doing shows at the Pyramid and Ray made uh, Revelation Records, which like wasn't just about 
straight edge bands. It was like inviting like nausea, inviting yeah. YDL who are, you know, controversial, but at the time they were on the scene, you know, uh, they mean? were, they were a big part of the scene at the time. So, um, you know, it was inclusive. It was a sort of like lift all boats kind of approach. And I would say it got separated maybe a year or two later when it just got so successful in a, in a way, in, in a hardcore way, you know, for the reasons that I think you, you aptly pointed out is like the imagery of it was really strong and branding was really strong. So I think it kind of like that almost took it over. And so that scene that had been diverse, uh, sort of separated from itself. The people that weren't straight edge felt not included because they couldn't dress the part. And I think um, the ones who dressed the part kind of found themselves in their own little kind of box. You know what I mean? That, that got stale for everyone too, eventually. I mean, that's a lot of kind of like history and perspective, but I think the initial thing of youth today was kind of like reminding everybody that this is hardcore, you know what I mean? To, you know, no pun intended. No, but, no, no. But that, that was the beauty of it. So, so like my thinking was like, all right, I definitely missed minor threat. I'm not really feeling, uh, you know, uh, beef eater or shit like that. Like COC is cool, but it's not really what I want. Urban waste are gone. I've got youth today now. And I think like bands like us, like youth today really empowered sick of it all you know, like, or, or, you know, Revelation Records empowered Sick of It All, you know, that made, that took the New York sound and let everyone else hear it. And everyone in New York, when we heard it, we were like, holy fucking shit, dude, we're doing something. It's like seeing your reflection in the mirror for the first time and being like, all right, we're, you know, we're doing something here, man. Let's, let, let's take it to the next level. And that's what everyone was doing, you know, and, and across the board, you know, altercation side by side like breakdown uh you know uh, killing time when they came they were like another wave you know and and it just kind of was for a couple of years rolling even the, even into the uh into the the new breed comp like just so many goddamn good bands and we're all watching each other we're all dancing to each other and we're all watching we all want to fucking come up come with a better mosh part than than they did you know what i mean so it's like a healthy competitive spirit and supportive community it was really rare actually uh your your perspective is very similar to what richie had said Mm. where he had said that new york hardcore in the first wave was dying out and it was actually used today that brought the resurgence and the focus back to the faster raw sounds yeah it's always been my opinion that the four most angry bands from 1980s New York uh, hardcore was Agnostic Front, Negative Approach, You Today, and the Chromax. And it's like my dream lineup. If I could ever book four bands just from that, yeah. it's like the most angry thing. And so everything you said also later on about the compilations and that the support of different bands, it's it's a great thing to see at this stage because so many different times in different phases and different places in hardcore, that same ethos and like sense of community creates those same things, like a support of the bands, people, everything you just touched on. I know you feel it was long, but it was actually so pertinent because so many people listening are probably going through the same experience right now where they're in a group of friends and their friends bands, they support each other in the dancing 
And it's, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to alliterate and show that. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, at some point, you know, GB was playing shows, but it was the inertia of use of today. And at some point, you actually get a chance to join that. And I was wondering is like, uh, where did, where did that, like, where did your inroad to actually being a player? Was it just because GB and youth would play? And when, um, Greg would step out, you would step in. It's like, how did you eventually get into that role? Um, I think it was more for me playing with Warzone because, um, uh, well then work, work, work your way back from that. Work your way from playing yeah. Warzone into that. I can't really remember how I ended up in Warzone, but, I was in GB and um, I just don't really remember how I got asked. Maybe it was through Arthur asked me or something, but to me it was, uh, well, that was a big step up, man. I mean, rabies was the lower East side, you know, personified, you know, as far as I was concerned at that time. So, you know, he kind of like being in the band, like, I was down hanging out on Avenue B. Like I was just, you know, hanging out in places that I had would have not gone by myself and, you know, getting like that kind of uh, education and kind of like view to, you know, like we're talking about the queen scene, like that's the Manhattan scene and the, and the Manhattan scene, Lower East Side crew, you know, like it's just different stakes, you know what I mean? And especially with the stories that you hear, it's a lot of like dangerous shit. You know what I mean? So that's not necessarily, I like a little, a bit of danger, you know what I mean? But it's not really like the the best lore for me, but being with rabies, I felt like whatever shit went down, I would be in a good position. So that was a cool experience for that. And also like, I just didn't really, couldn't imagine anyone would think that I was a cool guy to be in their band. Cause I was just sort of, you know, felt like more of like the, uh, just not on the inside, but so fuck, I'm in war zone now. And, uh, and, you know, I had a lot of respect for them and I guess we were playing pyramid or something like that. And uh, Ray, not Ray, uh, I think Richie and Purcell, I think Richie really might've was the one that maybe approached me, Richie or Purcell and Craig had quit youth of today and they were going on tour. And this is in 1987 to do break down the walls. And, I mean, it was just like being asked to join the Rolling Stones or something. You know, I was like, fuck, yeah, you know, this is amazing. Uh, I felt a little nervous about telling Ray that I wasn't going to be playing in Warzone. Um, But at the same time, I was still in GB. And um, if he was mad about it, you know, I was just willing to take that risk. Um, But he was totally cool about it, actually, you know, because we were going on tour. Warzone weren't going on tour. You know, so like, you know, you talk about just focusing on New York, like to go to Connecticut was a big deal. You know what I mean? Like you had to really do a lot of shit to like get on the radar of other cities. So now like because of youth today's popularity, um, I could see the whole country. To me, that was super appealing. So, um, so yeah, when I joined youth today, it wasn't long after that, that we were, I did the, uh, the break down the walls tour. And to me, Break Down the Walls was like the best record at that time. There was just nothing to touch it. And, you know, you thinking about Richie and Purcell. And Mike, and Judge, time, was on- Mike Judge was on yeah. drums. Like these are big motherfuckers. I mean, like they all just looked like 
uh, a football team basically. Uh, and, and, and just the music was fucking amazing. It was the complete ultimate personification of like, okay, like it's a tough band in a way. Okay. From the way it sounds and the way that these dudes look, you know, cause, uh, but also the music was high quality music and the message was a message of positivity. So to me, it was like everything that I was into at that time. So I, I felt fucking super lucky to, to do it. And I, I was, I couldn't believe you, that, that Craig quit. I, I just, I didn't understand that at all. I didn't get it. I, um, I wonder if you can compare and contrast playing in Warzone in New York city and like the kind of shows you were playing versus when you stepped into the youth of today and you're on tour as like a fucking, at that time, like might as well be like the Avengers in New York hardcore, like a fucking super group to go travel what were the shows yeah. like when you were playing with Warzone in New York at the time versus when you stepped and got in the van and you started going across country with the Break Down the Walls uh, tour? Warzone was, uh, Ray was very deep in just the Lower East Side uh, connect. He was just so connected down there. So you were like in connections that didn't necessarily have anything to do with hardcore. It was like just dudes that Ray knew and like, you know, Hell's Angels and shit like that and club owners and probably sketchy, some sketchy heads, you know what I mean? So that was kind of cool in that, um, you know, just to kind of see the Lower East Side through his eyes or just get a little exposure to that. And, uh, but, you know, Warzone was a New York phenomenon. You know, they didn't have like, I think maybe they had the seven inch at that time. Oh yeah, they must've had the seven inch at that time. But, you know, Todd was out with Murphy's Law. Uh, uh, Brad was kind of, not super into it at that time. He was, Brad was dating uh, Eloise from, uh, she was, Eloise was this beautiful uh, go-go dancer that danced for the Beastie Boys. And uh, so he was just kind of in his own trip and Ray was kind of like trying to figure out how to recontextualize the band, I think, which he ended up doing really successfully with- uh, Don't Forget with, the Struggle. Um, yeah, Don't Forget the Struggle. But- um, Youth Today was a, was a national and becoming an international thing. Like Youth Today was popular in like California. Yeah. Well, that was, I was, I was wondering because you left right before the don't forget to struggle recordings and all that. Right. Cause yeah. you had to go do it. So um, the shows that Richie described were basically you guys showing up to wherever and sort of playing. Sometimes he used the expression like X bench press as like, almost like a clone of like what a youth of today band would be, but just from that town. But also you were playing with the best of the best straight edge bands in like the bigger cities. Like you guys got to play with uniform choice and such. Yeah. So how did that feel to go from, you know, a small perspective of New York hardcore and a little bit around it, Connecticut and whatever, and then being exposed to this American hardcore scene and all these different bands that you've only seen if they came through your town. How was that for you? Cause even at the time that we're talking about, you're 18, 19, when you're eight, you're like 18 on your first U S tour. Right. Yeah. Um, it felt, it was great because I was like the, I was just a soldier. You know what I mean? I, there yeah. was no pressure on me to like do anything cool. I just had to keep up with these motherfuckers, which was like enough challenge for me uh, considering 
you know, having seen youth today, knowing like, or watching Craig and like knowing like whose shoes I was filling, like that's was the most that I could do. But the cool thing about it was it didn't matter who we played with. I mean, I, I don't know. I hope everyone experiences a time where you're just like on the motherfucking top of your game where like I knew it didn't matter who we played with if we opened the show or, or whatever, that we were going to be the most exciting fucking sickest band that anyone could see. Like when we finished the show, there was going to be, I mean, I sound like an asshole maybe now just saying, this. No. I'm, I'm trying to say it objectively. No, I mean, this is honest. Uh, but, but every single time we'd finish the show, you could just feel heads popping and people like going like, I'm starting a band. I'm changing how I, what I think I'm going straight edge. I'm going to start a band. I'm going to, you know, all of that is, I'm not into that anymore. I'm into this now. Like, it was just like, you would catch the Vanguard, you know, like what, what Richie was probably talking about, you know, bench press X, you know, like those dudes would come with their kind of version of what we were doing, which would never, you know, obviously they were trying to figure it out. You know, um, we had, uh, we would just basically give them a sick lesson and how it's really done. And like anybody else that wanted to challenge us in any sort of, on any realm, even when it came to like, and again, I'm going to go out on a limb and sound a bit, a bit of a dick, but hardcore back then, you know, we were teenagers and there's a lot of tough guy shit associated with hardcore. We, we were, I wasn't really that worried about that. So even if people wanted to be tough, we were ready for them. You know what I mean? Because we had fucking Richie, dude. He's a a bruiser. And, you know, Purcell and Ray, maybe not, or Mike, maybe to some degree, they're all big dudes. And so we were just basically impervious to attack at that time. <laughs> I just felt like we went out to California, like, oh, we're going to play with whoever we're going to play with. That's too bad. We're going to blow them away. I, I mean, I'm sorry if it sounds arrogant. It wasn't my doing. I was the lowest member in the band, I was lucky to be there, but just the, the crew of dudes we had, the music that we had and the passion that we had for it was sort of an irresistible combination. And it was an adventure, you know, and we did encounter all kinds of shit. You know what I mean? Like going through the South was fucking gnarly, man. There would be like legit Nazi skinheads there. And some of these dudes were like in, you know, 28 years old and you know, with swastika tattoos and they're just psyched because they think it's a skinhead band playing. But Ray would fucking come at them like directly, like he wouldn't change his message at all. And so that would create confrontation and, you know, run the risk of us getting our asses kicked. But for the kids that saw that happen, they were like, motherfucker, man. It's like, it's like the dude on the football team that's big, but is, is cool. You know what I mean? That sticks up for the little kids. You know what I mean? Like that kind of vibe is, I, th I think that that's just so cool. And I think that that's what youth today were like at that time. Just very inspired. You know, you hear me talking, I'm getting all fucking psyched about it. I don't know. It was just, you know, I've been in, I've been in lots of bands and done lots of different things and, and I've come into them with senses of like confidence and also senses of insecurity uh, you know, shit, we should have practiced. I don't know if this song is going to be the one, but we used to say, I was like, okay, welcome to like 35 minutes of just like fucking awesome hardcore and like cool information. And, 
you're going to be affected by this. It might scare you. You might be pissed off about it, but you're going to feel something. It's real. No, I, I, I don't think that you're being an, an arrogant person. In fact, sometimes there's a, a weird social contract where people don't want hardcore people to be like, yeah, we're the fucking shit. But I've seen it so many times over, be it every band at the moment where they're playing their record and they're the band that everybody's there to see. You mm-hmm. got to roll in with that with a swag or whatever it is. You have to have that confidence. Yeah. Otherwise, standing in front of these crazy kids, you're going to falter. So you need it. To, like, and, and, and I think the inertia of what break down the walls and that tour specifically, you, you perfectly put it out there. There was so much to be said that, and you see it in time and time in zines and books, interviews, where that tour was so impactful to spurn so much things that would come. And I, and I'm, I'm, it's amazing that you were a part of it. And something that Richie had talked about was also the violence at that time and the Nazi skinheads kind of some, not suburb, but co-opting some of the youth today. So I'd be like, oh, well, this is cool. This is fine. Yeah. And we would later see that in the East Coast for quite some time where people were doing that. So it's interesting. It's actually a, a great hardcore lesson to learn for you at your age. Mm-hmm. And then you guys would roll off of that tour. You would still be in, you would still be with youth. But I feel like between, and this is a, my perspective. So correct mm-hmm. me if I have it a little off. seems like when breakdown the walls tours ends and everybody gets back to New York, you're probably triply excited not only to do youth, but you also have the opportunities with, that comp was the, the the official green comp, the way it is, New York hardcore record comp. There's the GB seven inch, which eventually would come out a year after you came home. But there's also that spirit of '88. Like all these bands popped up after that. Yeah. And I believe, unless I'm mistaken, was it '88 or '89 where you actually went to Europe with youth? And did you go to Europe with youth? Yeah, yeah. You today went to Europe in '89, which was. Uh... Unreal. Yeah, Unreal, that's good. Right? I mean, you know, I, I had always been, I can remember being in history class looking at the, you know, world map and just being like, what, what's going on in, in, you know, Belgium? Like, what the fuck are they doing there? Like, just wondering about, you know, and also being so into like English music, like British music, just being like, do they know what hardcore is, man? Because we've just listened, we're absorbing so many British records, you know, I mean, now we were pretty much into our own New York kind of record collection like our friends were our favorite bands but but you know what's going on over there so we got an offer to go over to uh tour europe uh it was a very shitty offer but uh but it was all squats and stuff right all squats i mean we had we had nothing to compare it to so uh we did um a bit over two months with no days off uh through squats in europe and uh it was super gnarly i mean it was um but again again i had the same feeling of and this is like when ray was already kind of has a foot out of youth today to be honest because he had discovered i mean he's always had a a spiritual kind of calling within him but i think at this stage he was really just being into christian consciousness and it didn't really fly the same way with youth of today and you know, he had like the, the Krishna kind of tail and, and yeah, I don't know what it's called. There's a, a name. I always called it the knot. Cause I always, you always okay. saw that in Philly at the, like this weird back knot or whatever the hell. Okay. Knots maybe a better name than a tail, but there was actually a respectful name that I don't know the name. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't it. know. But, um, but at any rate, 
So to me, that was a bit of a bum out because it's like, here we are, man. Like these people are waiting for like this, you know, straight edge phenomenon and Ray's kind of like doing it, but he's not really into it. You know what I mean? Uh, in, in a way. Um, but nonetheless, we went over there. Purcell broke his, his ankle at a, one of the early shows. So he was playing with, with a cast most of the tour. And, um, you know, we're staying in squats. Like I didn't bring a sleeping bag. I would just like wrap my clothes. I would tie my t-shirts and shit around my body every night to fall asleep in squats because they're not fucking heated. They just told us we'd have a place to sleep. So um, it was just very challenging, but I, I didn't, even though like the, the power with like Richie and, and, and Mike had a different, it was a different time, even though it wasn't that much long after, but uh, a different power. The, the, the same thing was happening in Europe. Like Europe was still kind of stuck in this sort of um, waiting for black flag to come back. And, and you know what I mean? Like they were sort of like in this anarcho kind of like still stuck in this sort of like, um, yeah, crass sort of like punk discharge kind of world, but they didn't really have like a focused idea. And if you today say what you will is, is very fuck a fucking focused idea. And it was connected to skateboarding and connected to um, American culture, really. And uh, for a lot for that reason, a lot of people were hating on youth today. But we would play every night and Ray was to his credit again, fearless, like, if you were some sort of like squatter dreadlock person, that had a fucking problem with you today, because we were from America, Ray was like up in your grill, not like as a, as a political to try to win you to his opinion, but just like, I'm here to fucking play sick hardcore on a level that you haven't seen with a message. And the message is what's really important. And that message of course involved straight edge, but, uh, but more straight edge, not as like a join our straight edge army kind of corny way, but just like in the sense that like, if you are intoxicating yourself in this way, like you are shutting out uh, a lot of growth potential, you know what I mean? Like those kind of, the reasons why people, sh you know, I drink and all these kind of, I'm not like saying that, um, I'm not trying to say that straight edge is the answer for every for everything, but it is true, especially at that age, you know what I mean? Like you can just kind of uh, miss the whole boat, you know what I mean? As you, as you fall into it, because it's very, you know, being drunk is fun or taking drugs could be fun doing these things that, uh, and before you know it, that's what your life's about. And you're no longer in touch with like who you are. And, you know, and talking about vegetarianism very strong, which was like a piece, like not PC is not the right word, but like peace punk idea. And Ray was out there fucking shouting about vegetarianism. And for the same reason, like, I don't think everyone needs to be a vegetarian or that you're a bad person if you're not, but the information and the, and the concept behind it, I think is solid, solid reasoning. And he was coming really hard with that, whether you liked it or whether you didn't and coming with like, you know, American kind of like, yeah, I guess like skateboard fashion culture, which back then youth Europe, now you go to Europe, people there can buy the same shit we buy. They look, they dress the same. But when we went over there, all of the European kids, you know, all due respect, looked a bit corny. Like they were trying to like grab, you know, they, they had low vies. They didn't have Levi's, you know, they didn't have, <laughs> yeah. their shit was just a little bit off. 
So we must've looked like we had our shit together, like in, in some sort of way too. So long story short, it was a very impactful trip on me, but also on, I could see from when Gorilla Biscuits went back six months later, how deep the change was in the scene from that original tour of the youth today, how many seeds got planted and GB just kind of stepped right into all those upshoots and, and really benefited from it. And more so than that, sick of it all came when GB dropped off and sick of it all fucking just like basically created really just like to finish the job. You know what I mean? And, and there's a big reason why, you know, New York hardcore means so much over in Europe. And uh, I, you know, I definitely think youth today had a, a major part to play in that and uh, GB to some extent and, and sick of it all. You can't deny it, you know? Yeah. No, there's so much to touch on what you just said. First, my opinion on straight edge, obviously I've, I've been straight edge now for like 21 years and some people, some people find straight edge at a young age and it doesn't, it's not the shoe that's always going to fit, but there's a time and a place where you can, and, and you, you said you touched on it where you can really fuck your life up if you fall so hard into it. Mm-hmm. And so there's, if nothing else, straight edge for young people gives them a clearer mindset. So they don't just end up fighting out of whatever the fuck the end of your twenties is already, which is already mm-hmm. a miserable time. Mm. you're dealing with drug abuse you're dealing with alcoholism you're dealing with all these fucked up decisions that were made for being fucked up the whole time yeah and for some people it's a long-term thing for some people it's a it's a temporary thing some people look at it to stay and like oh it was a fad and i don't know why i ever did that but other people it was a safe you know we use a term today a safe space and a safe mindset to kind of survive a fucked up time for you as a kid you know between your your late teens your early 20s for sure. um, you, you're someone who actually survived not being a full ass cult member mm-hmm. of the Harry Krishna stuff, and I know Richie had espoused some spirituality and in ideologies about Vishnuism and stuff like that. But I always wondered how being around those guys as the seeds of Harry Krishna took. What in you kept you from going all in? Um, it just wasn't for me. I mean, it's kind of a glib way to, to explain it, but my first exposure to Harry Krishna was like the airplane movie that these were the guys that were handing you a flower in the airport. And that's a very narrow minded (laughs) idea of it. And, and, but in some ways, like I'm too sort of like uh, Rockaway beach to be a Harry Krishna. Like I, I just, it just didn't have that. And, and maybe I had the idea of like that it's a cult that you're going to end up in some sort of like situation that you can't get out of. So I, I had taken all that to heart. Maybe I, I saw like an after school special about cults or something like that, but I really did enjoy and respect Ray's passion for it and his philosophical pursuit uh, that that he has worked out through Krishna consciousness and and uh, and my have so many dear friends that that f- they found that and that gave them you know uh, some sort of uh, some answers for some things that you know in life is is 
so full of complexity and, and some people, you know, and, and, a, and a system, uh, you know, like a Krishna consciousness or something like it can be a helpful, uh, you know, I guess it means different things to different people, but I wasn't into it. I would definitely would talk to Ray. Ray definitely gave his best effort to try, try to get me into it. Um, but I, and I would engage him uh, on, on different, you know, we were talking about death, you know what I mean? A lot of the yeah. time on, on, on the youth today tour, like here, these European kids think they're getting this like American straight edge champion sweatshirt squad. After, we're sitting in the squad, just like talking about death. You know what I mean? Like, what what is it about? Like these different uh, births and you know, explain trying to make sense of life at at this kind of really crazy time. Um, but it just was not for me, you know. And and um, and from when hardcore kind of like ran its course to some degree for me, like it, it came from me, you know, doing quicksand and that just kind of taking me on a different journey that was more about the wider musical scene um, and less about just like, you know, what was going on on the Lower East Side. I, I just was thinking more about stuff like that and just, you know, then I got into my twenties, you know, I was, Thinking You're about, still so you know, young. You're still so young at this stage that we're even talking about. So much had already happened. Yeah, still young, but still like I wanted to be in love with with a girl. You know what I mean? Stuff or, or you know what I wanted. To, I wanted different things. To, I wanted to see what it's like to be intimate. I wasn't interested in like religion as my to, to find that. It just wasn't me. You know, but yeah. I I really I totally respected that that was Ray's passion and ultimately Purcell's. And so many of my great, great friends that are, are really smart people and, and, uh, and who I still love and, and respect to this day. So um, it was a thing in New York, Hare Krishnas. And uh, I mean, it, it eventually would even get into Philly because they would come to the Philly temple mm -hmm. and our, and we would grow into seeing so many of our friends jump into Krishna in the early nineties. Yeah. It was like a bizarre, it was a bizarre juxtaposition of in modern pop culture they were kind of clowned upon and then the music that i was finding these guys were in it and we had a ton of bands local like shift prima you know shelter would play here so I, I get what you're saying and i had a similar feeling like cool for you that you're into it it's not for me and i, I just interesting because i know richie had said you know just not something for him i remember sib saying no i'm far i was far too uh, i was raised catholic there's none of that you know i think that's part of it you know what i mean like just like I'm from Rockaway, like uh, Irish Catholic, like it just doesn't make sense, man. Yeah. I, I don't, <laughs> you know. Now, there, obviously, because of user today, you were kind of shown the way to get GB further along. And I remember you were saying when we were first talking about GB, you were just plugging along and trying to play shows. But it was, it's it is important to say that you know the birth of Rev which you talked about, and then the way it is comp, eventually the GB seven inch would lead to the start today. And I wonder if you musically were finally focused because you had been playing use of today stuff, but weren't really writing so much of it that you could put your full focus into start today and the seven inch. So maybe backtrack a year or so and explain how you kind of became musically focused on GB and the progression out of, GB just being a band that would play on New York hardcore shows to be in more. Uh, yeah, I guess 
the cool thing about being in youth today is that I was well, I was well aware that I was replaceable. I mean, you look at youth today, there's a lot of different members. So I knew that I was replaceable. Um, And so it gave me freedom to pursue youth today. And Ray was very supportive of, of uh, gave me freedom to, to do grill biscuits. Ray was super supportive of grill biscuits. So I was always taught how to free hand. There was no like conflicts there. Although, you know, if youth today had a thing, I would have to do that. Um, but it just didn't, it wasn't happening that much. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like we were going on tour left and right or, or whatever. We were for relative to the thing, but uh, it still wasn't that much. So when GB's, when the seven inch came out, it just feels like we had hit a stride and, uh, and making an album, like I felt like we could make something really great because, you know, between me and Siv and, and especially, you know, you know, Arthur, we added Alex to the band. Like we all had a lot of experience and a good vibe. Like we just had, we all made each other laugh and everyone was just down for like, um, for, uh, to move forward. And we just had a good vibe. And so uh, getting into the record, I want, and also Revelation was kind of taking steam and feeling that the success of the seven inch is like, we got to top this shit, man. We got to make something really special and great. And um, so I think I just blame, like not blame, but I, I credit having a good group of people in a good atmosphere and translating all those experiences, you know, being in youth today, seeing all the shit. And Sib was on tour with us too. Sib was the roadie on that first US tour with youth today. So we, him and I were like taking this all in and um, we just had accumulated a certain amount of like know-how and positive energy and that combined with the fact that we had a really cool record label to like deliver it to people um it's just like a lot of things coming together in a, in a good way and uh so i think that's really the, the 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 thing that's baked in to start today is just that it's all just got good energy you know what i mean and, and the time it just kind of captures the time really well well, I think it goes back to also we talk about roadie stuff as well. Like I actually all the notes and actually Richard didn't even mention that Sid was the roadie on the Breakdown the Walls tour. Yeah, but I feel like in the way that trades and in most real educations, you have like a mentorship or an apprenticeship as a roadie in a band, and you have to be just somebody who just wants to sell a T-shirt <laughs> to not want to get all that energy from that tour and start your own thing. And that was that was a genesis of my, my first band was like 19. I went on tour and I'm like, I need to be back this time next year. I had to fucking do this on our own. So yeah. I could totally see you and Siv only more energized after a monumental tour, like break down the walls to really put energy into GB. Yeah. And yet, so the contrast and comparison between the youth of today, break down the walls on the music versus the start today record is like, I feel like, the things that were touched on that we spoke about the early angst of youth today and like a resurgence of the original state of hardcore that isn't lost as much. I mean, you can feel it in the seven inch GB stuff, but with start today, there's harmony, there's hooks, there's melodies, there's a real play on choruses Mm -hmm. and the breakdown. and, And these are all things that 
I, I have to believe you kind of cultured in seeing how people react to you today. Mm-hmm. So break down some of the structure and like the, was there was there a cognizant thought pattern when you were writing these kind of songs like how to structure the start today stuff because you today might have had the monumental influence, but start today stands out as not only one of the most popular bought ever records in New York hardcore history, but and I, I hate I fucking hate the word normie. It's like the most, it makes me cringe, but you could play it to a normal person and they'll go, oh, this is actually pretty good for a hardcore band. Yeah, yeah. What was the, what was the thought processes in the writing and how did you get from the pet? Like, you know, you got one foot in you today, you were doing wars on, and then you, you, you guys pull out start today. Like, what was the thought process writing this? I mean, I was going to school. I mean, really, like, I mean, being, if you don't know how a mosh part works after being in youth today, like, your sleep, you know? So I had the advantage of not only being in youth today and seeing how all that works, but um, seeing all these other cool bands, like as I was on tour, like watching, you know, a Richie or an underdog, you know what I mean? Like being around all these people that knew how to do it. So I was picking that all up. And I thought with GB, like we had a kind of a cool position because we were called Gorilla Biscuits. So it kind of gives us a lot more room to just do stuff. You know what I mean? Like if you're called Youth Today, it's a really tight, punchy idea, but you're not going to really want to hear a harmonica solo from them. But if Gorilla Biscuits do a harmonica solo, it's sort of like, it's in, it's sort of allowed. So I think what I wanted to do with, with Gorilla Biscuits is to maximize that aspect of the band to, to, to let that, you know, like I said, we all had great sense of humor. We were all, when we would hang out, we would just be cracking each other up, making fun of each other, uh, you know, fucking with each other, but always with, with this really kind of good spirit. And so capturing that at the same time, I was getting to be a better songwriter, better, better, you know, musician to some degree from all this experience. So, uh, you know, there's, there's also how to approach subjects lyrically, like where Youth Today would have a certain, like for example, like Youth Today would have a song like No More, which is about vegetarianism. It's like pretty stark, pretty harsh in a way, like saying like more or less like, you gotta fucking stop killing these animals, dude. It's fucked. You know what I mean? It's a little bit more like finger pointing, whereas like GB takes the tact of, talking about cats and dogs, which is sort of like a more, uh, it's sort of more soft power approach. You know what I mean? Rather than like pointing out your cruelty, it's more like trying to make you think about it in a different way. Or like, you know, uh, you today would have a song like, well, Break Down the Walls is pretty uplifting and amazing. It's kind of like, you know, gives you this like Martin Luther King kind of vibe that's that's amazing. That's why it's one of the best songs of all time. Uh, whereas like GB degradation is more like lived experience within a hardcore scene. Like how does this play out within our community in a lived experience? You know what I mean? And, and taking that approach rather than this like more lofty approach, it's t- taking, uh, and it's also making fun of some of the people that are backing these fucking things. So you, you, you can make them smaller. You know what I mean? Like uh, there was a there was dudes at CBs that were were white power that would bring like 
fanzines trying to explain how the white race is whatever. And like, they wouldn't just get beat up. They would just be around. It'd be like sort of like village idiot kind of thing. You know what I mean? There would, when they get into numbers, like in, in Trenton, there would be like numbers of skinheads and that would be more of an issue, you know, these racist dudes. And it would be more like, you know, kids fighting, you know what I mean? It's yeah. kind, of, kind of crazy. Like that was real. And that happened to us too. But I mean, with GB, that wasn't like, we're going to beat their asses. It's like, no, these people are fools, man. Like, that's not what it's about. So I think with Gorilla Biscuits, we were able to like, just because of our, our vibe and just like the kind of universe that we had sort of created around ourselves through just doing what we're doing, you know, um, how to, how to, it was easier to take those approaches. And I think that those approaches um, have a certain universality or something that people can relate to on a level that's like less didactic, you know, less telling you how you got to be, you know what I mean? Like we, we you know, whereas, you know, we're covering the same subjects, but in a different way. Now, I wonder if for you, as you're building this all up, if you even realize what it would turn into, because obviously in the writing process, you're excited but it takes playing these uh, also first releasing it. And what Rev being probably at that time, the record label that you could most count on to bring out whatever it is. Like there's people that have said, I didn't even have to guess what it would be like. If it was coming on Rev, I was buying it the day it came out. Yeah. And so how did you feel once you realized that start today was going to be its own impact? I most felt that we had just when it was finished and I was listening back to it and I was like, this record's really fucking cool. Like there's, there's a chance that people might not get some of the things like start today, the song with the harmonic and solo or something like that. Like maybe that isn't hardcore enough, you know, for some way, but I just felt like, we did it. We made a great record. I'm like, I don't have any problems with any of this. You know what I mean? So I could be wrong, but I, I just feel like when people hear this record, they're going to connect to it on some level. Like I didn't know whether we would be, um, you know, everybody's favorite band. I don't, I, you know, but I, I knew at least it, if people said that this record sucks, that that would just be their opinion. You know what I mean? It's like, if you put out a record and someone says it sucks and you kind of agree with them, that's like a bad position to be in. And, but if you know that it doesn't suck and someone says it sucks, then you can just be like, well, that's just your opinion. You know what I mean? And, and uh, so I felt like that. And, you know, we, by the time the album came out, we were really not even playing that much, you know, cause it kind of came out a little bit late. It came up after our tour. And by that time, just shit had started to fall apart. You know what I mean? It's like uh, the scene that we had like really built up was starting to get, I don't want to say, um, just was getting played out with all of us. Not because it was I, bad, but because we were just kind of getting into different shit. I was actually going to touch on that. So I didn't want you to get into too long of a thing because there are specifics that relate to what we're going to talk about after this. Yeah. Um, and it's good that you preface with the, the skinhead stuff. There is obviously tons of times where you read about violence being at CBGB's matinees. Yeah. Uh, violence in the name of straight edge with different gangs. And it 
I feel that it's not everybody, but there's been enough people who spoke on it and you could see the culture change that it seems like the good feelings and some of the vibes from hardcore shifted in that period between 88, 89 into 90, where a lot of players decided to kind of say, I'm going to take my ball and go somewhere else. You know, this isn't, this isn't exactly for me. How much of that specifically on top of interpersonal stuff took place to make you shift out of like being uh, involved with Gorilla Biscuits? Uh, yeah, it got more violent. I think there was a lot of different reasons for that. I think, but I wouldn't just say that only. No, it's not the total thing, but I'm saying yeah, how much did that play in? I think it was like CB stopped doing, uh, stopped doing uh, shows, hardcore shows. That was one. Um, I think for my own personal feeling like I started going to going to college um I didn't really and I think this is one of the things about hardcore is like I never considered it like a career choice you know I was just trying to like thinking like I'm gonna go to college god I really would like to have a cool girlfriend you know I wanted to like explore different kinds of music you know I was interested in like I just wasn't like of all the old hardcore stuff I had kind of have been listening to it for three or four years now and I kind of got it. And as far as like the stuff that we were creating, like, yeah, I was into it, but um, maybe in some ways I just had gotten played out on the whole vibe, you know? And, and, you know, I think with the youth crew stuff, there was also like a, a backlash to it. And in some ways I understood the backlash and, and agreed with it. You know what I mean? It was like, where it used to be this sort of like scene with a lot of diversity. Now it had become the scene where everyone looks the same and kind of is trying to hit the same target. And it was getting a little boring and not to blame. And, and that was just my feeling about it. Cause to other people, it's like the song new direction uh, says, I think there's a line, you know, something saying like where something is like, to where it is to you just because you're over, it doesn't mean it's not cool anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I don't mean to say that, but for me, I was like just getting into other shit. And, um, and I think with the hardcore scene, CB stopped doing matinees. I think um, there was, there was like a stress on violence. People were getting like beat up a lot now where they weren't before. And like someone got stabbed at a gorilla biscuit show. And I was just like, this is fucking crazy. And um, there was a scene budding at ABC no Rio, which was kind of like, I think very creative and interesting. And I kind of got into that for a while, but uh, once quicksand started to kind of pick up, I just was more focused on, I was more interested in like Sonic youth and my bloody Valentine and stuff like that than I was in hardcore politics anymore. And, um, and I kind of felt like that scene eventually kind of ABC no Rio became its own thing. And then I think that other scene started to pick up at, uh, at, uh, what was that spot on St. Mark's um, Coney Island high. And so I kind of just took a break from it and I, I kind of peeked back in with Civ a little bit because Civ was like a hardcore thing. So I, I kind of like dipped back in, but uh, at that point, you know, I was with quicksand, I was touring for like 300 days a year. Or yeah, something. I actually, so I, I, I wouldn't do it. I wanted to walk into that specifically because there's so much that changed for you there. You actually touched on the whole thing about, um, just some of the people that would end up playing in quicksand were people that were actually 
part of both the CB's world, but also the ABC No Rio world. It's just interesting to me that at the moment we're start today, which would end up being like one of the biggest, like most units sold New York hardcore records of all time. Instead of jumping to be like, we're going to play this out and do the 250 shows. You were, you chose to go to college. What were you going to college for? I mean, I'm overrating college in, in a way because like, no, but it's, it's more like an idea. Like, what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking about going for? I was, I thought maybe I'd be a teacher or something like that. You know? Okay. I, I was just trying to like get through it. You know, I never, I, I don't even know if I put together two years worth of credits. So, well, that's, uh, you know, that's music. Kind of the funny play. thing. That's the funny yeah. thing is you're like, I need to go to college. And then you, as you're saying, I need to go to college, but then you slide into quicksand, which became this in massive thing in comparison. Yeah. I mean, it was an easy, easy choice to make at that point because, you know, I, I definitely struggled with it to some degree when, um, you know, we got signed to a major label, you know, I felt like, oh, is this like a sellout, you know, because there was a lot of that kind of talk at, at that point, because, but then I, then I, I found my apartment being paid for and I was living, you know, it was much cooler apartment. Yeah. And I was like, fuck this, man, this rules. I, I'm in whatever ride this is, I'm going to take this ride until it, until it's over. And then I'll, you know, then I'll, I'll worry about, you know, going back to college. And, uh, eventually you know i kind of just swam too far to to go back you know well were you thinking about the clones and all these different elements that were obviously present at the end of the 80s involved in straight edge and what aligned you to think about writing something so far away from the beaten um formulaic you know straight edge song and was it hanging out with like Capone and the guys from Burn and Absolution and all that that kind of got you thinking about playing beyond the standard format? Like what was the inertia? Because what you guys would do alongside Burn and alongside um, into another, you guys would eventually do something which would be titled Post Hardcore, which would then shittily co-opted by some lazy journalist to mm-hmm. be nothing to do with this. Yeah. So there had to be... Uh, not open thought like we're going to create this new genre but like it was organically shifting and I would kind of like you'd explain the reasoning beyond or reason beyond behind pushing forward into a different musical direction with quicksand I just think that you know it was a, re- a reaction I mean I've always had diverse musical tastes you know I've kind of talked about them earlier um, but uh, you know I was listening to all kinds of different shit throughout my hardcore experience. Um, but uh, I think it was a reaction to what, what the success of the youth crew movement, you know, in a way, cause it was like here we had kind of united the scene for a little while until everyone looked at each other and was just like, we're all wearing the same t-shirt. This sucks. You know, we're all making the same mosh parts. This sucks, you know? So I felt that too, you know? So you know, I'm really proud of, of the records that I made that like helped create that moment. And it was fucking beautiful. And obviously we're still talking about it. It's meaningful. Um, but it, at that point for my generation of having just run through it, it's like, I don't want to do that kind of shit anymore because like, it's just, it's too well-defined. So what's the best thing to do is to like fuck with the formula. You know what I mean? And I think that's what bands like, I think 
I think hardcore, a friend of mine was saying recently, hardcore always needs a reset every few years. You know what I mean? And I think that was the moment of a reset. And I think what you saw happening at ABC No Rio was again, a reset to the original hardcore forms where it's a little uglier, a little shittier, uh, a little more arty in a way. And um, so I related to that, but I also related to Danzig and I related to Jane's Addiction and I related to things that were like broader than hardcore, but still affected me. So with, you know, with quicksand and I think, you know, I think that burn kind of falls into that category too. Um, we were trying to like use our experience within hardcore of like, you know, cr we knew how to like move crowds basically, you know, in clubs. Yeah. Um, but to, to use that experience in a way that would not be the same kind of what had become a bit of a generic style. And, and that's again, from my perspective, because the person that got into hardcore in 1990 and like, I don't know who the, the best band at that time was in like, that was up and coming. Maybe it was like turning point or something like that. That could have been the record that fucking blew their fucking minds and they don't really care about you today in the same way. So like, I'm not disparaging that. I'm just saying like kind of where my head was at. And I think that that was in sync with a lot of other people that had similar experiences to me. And I think, I think people went like, oh yeah, that's cool. You know, we were into hip hop too. That's another thing we were like, so in hardcore in New York too, like you were as into hip hop as you were into hardcore. So like wanted to do something funkier, you know, like something that had like more groove. Well, I feel like because of the neighborhoods, obviously uh, train culture, graffiti, and the way the street culture of the original hip hop era, it's always been hand in hand where the early hip hop artists before they found, you know, giant commercial success were playing off in the same rooms or promoting in the same record stores. Mm -hmm. So hardcore and hip hop, especially in New York city walked hand in hand together. And I know later on skated culture would, and you mentioned skate culture and the use of today. Yeah. There seems to be an amalgamation where like New York city street culture became completely identified in the music culture and then poorly copied in different facets across the world in hardcore culture. And there, there was revelation, but then there was like the next record label that was almost as good as revelation. And they got the bands that Rev wouldn't sign. And then the mm -hmm. third band, the third label was like, well, they wouldn't sign a rep. We can't sign them or Rev wouldn't sign them. And the band, you know, like this third, and then there's a fourth wave. Yes. All in this same time period. So it makes sense. And I'm saying this a lot to explain to people about Walter saying is, you know, when something is massively popular, the next thing to do is imitate it. Yeah. And then the, by the third iteration of imitation, it loses value. And so when you guys are all together going, man, this kind of sucks. All look the same. What were the, what were the direct influences as you're writing the stuff that eventually would, you know, lead up to slip and, you know, later on, but like, what was the thought process? Did you say, hey, I'm going to try something? Or you say, I want to write, a, like, hey, I have this idea for this riff that I got from so-and-so? Uh, you know, a mixture of things. I, I guess, like, I was more into things that sounded, um, I guess, with GB, and even to some degree of you today, I felt that there was, like, a cleanliness to it that I wanted to, like, just get a little bit less that. Like, just hit the guitar open or just, you know, and definitely Fugazi were an influence in that because they you know, obviously like Ian Mackay has such a huge place in hardcore and like as a, as a artist, like 
hearing like waiting room for the first time was just like, holy fucking shit. Like this is so like, I thought embrace was a good step away from minor threat. I thought that was really cool, but Fugazi was just like mixing elements in such a new way, but yet still had the guts of what I liked about minor threat somehow. So I think that was kind of mind blowing. Jane's addiction was mind blowing. Danzig was rocking at that time, in my opinion, on a kind of more metal side and Slayer were really rocking me at that time. Um, so, and then ev eventually by the time we made Slip, I was really big in on the shoegaze movement over in England. And um, so while we didn't sound shoegaze, I was drawing from that. So that just kind of changed our sound in, in such a subtle way where people might not know the things that I'm ripping or in, inspired by, you know, in quotes. Um, and I'm not really doing it right, but my version of it or our version of it has something real about it that connects. And uh, I think it was that kind of like combination of things while at the same time, like obviously I learned how to do all the shit in hardcore. I mean, I, I learned how to play guitar, you know, in one mode, but being in a band and understanding what moves people, I learned how to do in hardcore and that still always informs what I do somehow. So we got a lot more to talk about here. And before we go, cause we could go another two hours just on what would happen with quicksand and then, and the major record label signings and then into rival schools. Let's just wrap this one here. We'll bring you back on and we'll be able to go really into details in the second half. I really appreciate you being on, not only just being like absolutely enthusiastic, but just giving us so much more flavor and details to some of the stuff that some of us only read about in zines. So Walter, you were a great guest. Thank you for coming on. I know you got stuff going on with vans and these live streams. Talk about that real quick. And then just thank you so much. Can't wait to look forward to part two. Thanks a lot, Joe, man. I, I really appreciate what you do. And, uh, the This Is Hardcore shows, I, I've played so many of them and gone to, to quite a few that I didn't play. And it's just awesome that you f give your energy and create that that space for everybody to uh, to mix and to meet and to, uh, it's, you know, it's it's hardcore needs that. That's, you know, that that's the, the, the whole patchwork of it. So I, I much respect and, and love to you for, for doing that. Um, I'm doing a show called New Direction on uh, channel uh, Vans Channel 66, which is a live streaming thing on uh, on Vans's website. And you know why I'm talking so much passion passionately about hardcore is because I'm just so back into it because of this show. I've really been brushing up not only the stuff that I loved when I first time around, but uh, damn, like 25 years probably of of things that I've heard here and there, but uh and also very very interested in what's going on right now because i think probably your your listeners know like this is a great time for hardcore like Absolutely. okay we don't have shows that sucks but the the passion is there and there's so much creativity and i'm, I'm finding so many new bands and with new direction uh i've got some of them playing on the show this last week uh i had mind force on who are incredible band. Um, I'm going to be having my, my boys outburst come on next uh, for the next show. Um, I had uh, incendiary on. And uh, 
So I'm just really lucky to be surrounded by so many talented people. And um, I'm really having a great time with the show. So it's live stream only. It's uh, on Thursdays, every second Thursday uh, from five to seven. And uh, so, yeah, dude, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, to be doing that. And, uh, you know, and I have a bunch of music stuff coming up, but I would love to uh, uh, get back together and, and, and discuss with now, you. We're going to have uh, a great part too. And I just appreciate yeah. your enthusiasm after all these years. Thank you for the inspiration and just so many formative moments in hardcore and good luck to you with the new direction. We're going to have show notes with all this stuff linked, and we'll be pushing this up on social media. Mindforce had a great time. Incendiary had a great time. I can't wait to see the outburst. Dude, we'll have you back on. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Joe. Take care, man. Man, that was awesome. It was really fast for he and I. And like I said, we're going to bring him back on for a part two. Wally was a lot of fun, and I can't wait to talk to him about the end of GB, getting into quicksand, Civ, etc. But we'll have to wait. Next week, my guest is Darren Walters. What initially started out as him releasing a turning point 7-inch would turn in time to linking up and creating one of the most powerful and innovative independent record labels of the entire 1990s and into the 2000s. And tying back into the entire point of this podcast, which was talking to people in hardcore who had an amazing impact in hardcore and also learned so much and turned it into like a career or like a lifetime skill. His entire work with his record label would eventually lead him to being able to teach music business stuff at Drexel College in Philadelphia. And he doesn't have a degree or a PhD to do that. But that's how much he was accomplished and respected in his field that the Drexel University brought him on to teach a class. Darren has so much to say about the shift in hardcore, not only musically and sonically with some of the releases he put out, but just the way the music industry shifted and the way that record labels interacted with independent music. And it's a great tutorial and kind of helps explain some of the things that we were touching on back when the Paris went into in the Richie and his story ties in perfectly. And it was a really fun interview and I can't wait for you guys to check it out. So talk to you next time. Be sure to check out our links. Look for us on Patreon. Look for us on Instagram. Can't wait to see what we have coming up at the end of April. Another crazy run of shows. I don't want to talk about it, but you can check it out. Also, T-I-H-C podcast. Go to it. Thank you.